and welcome back to the Scholar on the Belt and Road podcast. I am Oli Malimov and joining me today, my co-host, Alicia Dovgaluk. This past weekend was highlighted by the second Belt and Road Forum, where more than 30 world leaders and 5,000 participants gathered in Beijing upon the invitation of President Xi Jinping. While the top leaders continued to shape the BRI strategy, Alessia and I dove deep into a very particular element of the Belt and Road Initiative, the CPAC, China-Pakistani Economic Corridor, and the wider China-Pakistani relations. We sat down with Zuna Ahmed Khan, a researcher at Tsinghua University's Belt and Road Strategy Institute, and a member of Scholar Youth League, also curating our anchor project, the Discussion Club. Zun's professional journey started in Pakistan, where she was a researcher at Lahore University of Management Sciences and anchored a current affairs program at Daily Naibat. She's currently researching CPAC, Belt and Road, and China's relations with Muslims World at Tsinghua University's Belt and Road Strategy Institute, after anchoring the Belt and Road face-to-face at China Economic Net. How has the approach to bilateral cooperation between Pakistan and China changed from the first to the second Belt and Road Forum? What is Pakistani's perception of China and what is the state of the people-to-people relations? What are the current developments on the trade scene? Zoom gave us many insights into these and many other questions. We hope you enjoy this episode, and don't forget to subscribe. Zun, welcome back to Scholar on the Belt and Road podcast. Welcome, Zun. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be here again. Zun, today is a very important day, as we know, here in Beijing, Mm. because it's the second forum on the Belt and Road that China is hosting. Tell me uh, what you think of the Belt and Road. If you can unpack it the way you see it and the way Pakistan sees it as a representative of Pakistan here in Beijing. Wow. Well, I think for me personally, I've been affiliated with a beneficiary of and maybe a consequence of the BRI, the Belt and Road Initiative, in many ways. I would first go back to why I came to China to begin with, which was a decision I made in late 2014 and early 2015. The reason was that I was working as a security analyst. I was working in the media. I was familiar with the direction in which things had gone. And there were a lot of factors that had contributed to the worsening circumstances of Pakistan specifically at that point. As someone who wanted to maybe play an important part, I wanted to see what could an alternative look like, an alternative worldview that was not about a zero-sum game. I think people of international politics who understand that term, which wasn't about I win or you win. It wasn't either or. It was maybe more combined. And then I came across, at that point, Martin Jake's book, and it talked about Chinese concept of moralism versus morality, Moralism was uh, is more Western a more Western concept, which means you want to civilize or you want to democratize or you want to change people for the better, as if we are to be uniform. But the Chinese conception was more to do with unity, harmony, 
and coexistence of differences. At that time, I read the five peaceful rules of coexistence that uh, the Chinese government had recommended Afghanistan. Right. Afghanistan was a very important part of what I was experiencing at that point. So long story short, I came to China because I wanted to seek an alternative to what we had experienced. And this is actually what the Belt and Road Initiative is. When I came here, I was studying international relations, and I was studying it from the point of view that we don't have to change people. We can coexist. And we have to find a way to work together by realizing that our future and our interests are combined. And this is at the core essence of the BRI. And this is where my interest in China, my interest in what we are experiencing today in Beijing. So first, I think for me, I was seeking something that I wanted, I wanted to be a part of something which meant more peace. And whatever I was understanding, whatever I had understood before as a politics student and as someone working in this field, it wasn't compatible with what I felt could lead to more harmony. Two years ago, when we had the Belt and Road Forum, we talked about energy infrastructure. We talked about hard, hard requirements, harsh realities. And a major part of the world was devoid of these basic necessities. Mm -hmm. Today, we talk about a green belt and road. We mm. talk about socioeconomic uplifting poverty. We talk about sustainability. We talk about a stable environment for businesses to thrive in. Good governance. Good governance. We talk about things that were maybe considered luxuries four years ago and also two years ago. And I think this is... This is the part of not just the Chinese idea of international relations, but also that of the BRI, that we, you and I, sitting in this room, Olim, we cannot determine what would be our requirement two years from now, two months from now, maybe right. even next week. And if we are so sure about what to implement today for the next 10 years or five years, actually what we're doing is we are losing out on the possibility to change for the better. So the BRI, in essence, is about evolving. And this is what we have experienced as far as Pakistan's experience is concerned, as far as other countries along the Belt and Road that I've had the privilege to study, and as far as Chinese own, China's own domestic reform is concerned. They're always open to trying, experimenting a little bit. They're not afraid to try something. And yeah. then they see if it doesn't work, they change it. There's no harm in accepting what you tried failed. Yeah, you feel out the stones as you cross the river. You feel out. And if you, if you think you can predict fully what you or others need, then I think that was a fundamental flaw of the kind of global governance that we were experiencing previously, that we still are to a major degree. But today I think we don't have to democratize to be privileged enough to have roads in our cities mm. or to have access to health benefits. We don't have to... I mean, there are decisions that each nation state is capable of making and understanding what is their requirement. So we don't need, we don't need universal ideals. We need a sense of universal existence of humanity. So now you're doing more of the research-based work on the Belt and Road. But you also mentioned that uh, you were involved in media before you came to China. And actually, when you came to China, you also worked in media. Yeah. Could you tell us um, more about your experience uh, in the Belt and Road face-to-face -face show as an anchor and mm -hmm. uh, in your work in media back uh, in Pakistan? What made you, what, uh, what uh, 
what drove you to make a decision to be involved in media? It wasn't really my decision, actually. Uh, it was a funny... So the way I... I never wanted to be a media person. What I did want once was when the 2011 election results were being announced, I was writing about that election. I was an analyst at that time. And I said... I just said to myself, you know what? Next election, I will be on TV and I'll announce it. I just thought about it. And then I forgot about it. It was just a moment of, my God, I want to be the one announcing. Yeah. Because the party I supported at that time was winning. So it was, I never thought about being on, on TV. What happened was that once I had already been accepted for my degree in Xinhua, I wasn't sure 100% if I'll go. Um, I was working with one of my professors in LAMS, which is the university I went to for some time. And some people came to him and they said, we want to do a program on this topic. And he said, well, Zoom, should, Zoom could be someone good because I was good at, I was generally speaking at different activities and events. And then I went for the mock. It, was, it went well. And then I just, I, I had already been as an analyst on screen or on radio a few times, but I never thought about being the person asking the questions. Mm -hmm. So that's how it started. And I was lucky enough to get a very primetime show on a national, on a, on a channel that was running on national television. And my producer, that team was fantastic. So I was able to interview a lot of very important people. And the, the theme was international politics. So that was my media experience. It was about eight months. It was it was a very challenging experience for me because it was in Urdu mm -hmm. that I was anchoring. And actually, I had never studied in Urdu. I didn't think in Urdu, especially if I thought international politics. And it was still because it was so out of my comfort zone. I think it taught me a lot about this field. And I realized that maybe to some extent I had more of a natural um, predisposition to it than I had ever thought. It was pretty spontaneous. And so when I came to Beijing, I was in touch with the CPEC Media Forum, which mm -hmm. is a platform that is supported by some Chinese and Pakistani media and think tanks. And one of the people over there asked if I would be interested in anchoring again. And I said, and I had been on a few Belt and Road related interviews. So I think they thought, okay, she could be someone uh, who could be maybe suitable. And that's how the Belt and Road face-to-face, -face, my involvement with the Belt and Road face-to-face -face started. So the program is basically about the Belt and Road, obviously, but more towards the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And it's in, divided in three segments, the political, the economic, and the cultural. So uh, every week we are aired uh, in a Pakistani media as well as on Chinese media. And we talk about the current developments, bring a Chinese and a Pakistani expert, sometimes take people on call, and just discuss what are the emerging developments and the challenges, etc. So it's quite an interesting way to keep in touch with what's emerging. And this was back when? You the Belt and Road phase was over a year ago. Over a year Since ago. over a year okay. ago. Yes, I've been doing that since, I believe, February 2018. And is this when your interest in uh, CPAC, uh, China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, started or was it before no, that? No, my interest in China-Pakistan Economic Corridor goes back to when I was an anchor in Pakistan. Uh -huh. I was, I covered the announcement of that $46 billion that, that President Xi Jinping pledged to Pakistan during his first visit. You covered it live. I covered it, <laughs> no, not live. But that was the point where my parents said, our daughter is going to China. Before that, they were dissuading me. So because right. nobody I knew had come here. So especially to study politics. That was the point where I thought, 
wow, you know, this was something that I didn't exp- I didn't know what it would look like the cooperation between China and Pakistan. But that point was where CPEC became something very important to me individually before I came to China. Mm-hmm. All right, let's talk about CPEC now, right? Okay. As it's the core project, right? Yeah of the um, Belt and Road, especially in the bilateral relations between China and Pakistan. So can you talk about how it started, where it's at, and um, about the process of the buildup of the CPAC? Well, I'll start with 2013, when CPAC was actually announced as an idea, part of the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, But in 2015 is that point where it became something tangible. CPEC, as it was announced, the $46 billion at that time pledged, was um, a combination of China's Belt and Road Initiative and more so of Pakistan's own vision 2020, which was we desperately needed infrastructure, energy, and the port of Gwadar and special economic zones. So from the starting point of when the investments under the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor were finalized, they were determined domestically by Pakistan's domestic goals. Now, since then, two years later, this $46 billion became more, $65 billion pledged. CPEC primarily consists of four types of projects, energy infrastructure, uh, road, rail infrastructure, the Gwadar port and free trade zone, which is in Balochistan, and the special economic zones. Now, now the interesting point comes when... uh, and, and, and the other thing to understand is that between China and Pakistan, the government-to-government relations have been extremely positive, good, full of trust. I don't think in international relations, there are two countries that have consistently trusted each well, other. Well, you have a special relationship. A I, very I think, special. Yeah, I Iron think, Brothers, I, I think it, it, Yeah, exactly. I think it even... Uh, uh, in in a document of the uh, friend, friendly relationship between the two countries, it actually says special relationships. If I'm not mistaken, it's 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 a uh, unique relationship, exactly. and both acknowledge it. But at the same time, because Pakistan's economy was not was doing quite poorly, we had a lot of domestic challenges. That trust, that political trust, had not translated to economic cooperation, almost insignificantly. So, CPEC is an opportunity, actually, to catch up in terms of our business-to-business, economic cooperation, and also the people-to-people cooperation. This is the way I look at the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, because that is the side of it which requires more effort, and that is the effort that the governments are trying to facilitate. Mm -hmm. But the business communities of both the countries that were not as active. If you compare the proximity, the geographical proximity, the positive relationship, the economic side is not is not as high up. So now with this with the government uh, with this government which was elected in 2018 from starting from 2015 from a purely or primarily um, infrastructure oriented direction we have also added a socioeconomic dimension. And the interesting thing is that this dimension is so compatible with what President Xi Jinping talked about today. From phase one of CPEC, where we were building basic infrastructure that Pakistan was essentially starved of, now we are talking about 
something beyond that basic infrastructure. We are talking about vocational trainings. We are talking about green sustainability. We are talking about socioeconomic dimension within the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor. And we started talking about it months before today's event. Mm -hmm. So some people at that point, in fact, I was, I was uh, on a program where one of the panelists right after the election said that, well, the new government of Pakistan disagrees with the previous government of Pakistan. Do you think CPEC will continue in the same way? And I personally said that the priorities of this new government, not they don't break away from those of the previous government, but actually they enhance the require. They, they are facilitating phase two of the corridor, which is that you need infrastructure to to help people or to give businesses a good environment and opportunities. So you have to start investing in those opportunities. You have to start investing in people. True, but uh, as you know, that there's some sentiments, especially from the West, mm. that these types of projects are what they call a death trap. You know, for That's countries. exactly why we need an enhancement of priorities. If you build 10 offices and you don't train people to work in them, then there, there's no way that those can be feasible. Right. But if you build four and train people and then build another two and then train more, I mean, this may be a very simplistic way to view it. But is, but that, is that what's really going on right now? Pakistan has to determine that. Right. This is, this is another thing that I've talked about and I, I like to specifically mention that every country along the Belt and Road Initiative has agency. They have the ability, they should have the right incentives. Right, because nobody's forcing them. This is the most important thing to understand. Yes. It's easy to go to Beijing and say what happened in XYZ cases. Mm. But who were the stakeholders? Who were the decision makers? I cannot think of a single project in Pakistan under the Belt and Road Initiative that was not suggested by Pakistan. And I study this. I, I don't want to go into but I work with local government. I work with the Chinese companies. I... Exper I'm experiencing CPEC as it's shaping up. It's, it is my passion, if that is the way to put it. There is not a single place. Maybe some people say, why is the higher management Chinese in this project right now? Right. Well, because, because they know. <laughs> you, you decided that exactly. because you need this building to be constructed in this time period. And if you start exactly. training your people and you build that building, what about what will those people do with that specific skill set? What you have to train the people for is to be the labor or the workforce inside that building. Mm -hmm. What you have to train people for is what's beyond the basic infrastructure requirement. And are these vocational training programs that you mentioned, yes. are, there, are they still in the form of uh, the dialogue or conversation? No, they're happening. Or they're happening. They're right happening. Okay. Actually, uh, this next month, I will go to Tianjin. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it's one of the biggest vocational training institutes in China. And they have state-of-the-art facilities. They already have cooperation in Pakistan since over a year ago. Students are coming every year to gain vocational training in areas specifically determined by the Planning and Development Commission of Pakistan and the NDRC. Basically, these two are the ones that are uh, discussing CPEC on the government level. And we have students coming every year to gain vocational training. At the same time, uh, we talked about socioeconomics. So we have hospitals. Last month, uh, when in Gwadar, China inaugurated the biggest Chinese aid project, the Gwadar International Airport. 
Mm-hmm. The Prime Minister of Imran Khan was there for the and it's already he inaugurated. Open. No, it will open in the next six years. It, it will start construction oh. now. Inauguration oh, okay. is to like announce it basically. Okay. Now we start yeah. the construction yeah. phase. Everything has been finalized. Yeah. But apart from that airport project, they signed an MOU for a vocational training center in Gwadar and the enlargement of a hospital, a 40 bed hospital to a 200 bed hospital, which is a few million dollars of projects. So you see that it was Pakistan that had to say on some level, these are our requirements. And then to the extent that China is able to meet those requirements, obviously with their own interests aligned, they can meet them. Mm-hmm. And what about the public perception in Pakistan of these projects? Because socioeconomic element is very important, but there has to be some trust between the uh, peoples of different countries. Is CPAC contributing to development greater trust between peoples or? Yeah. No, this is very important. Actually, the funny thing is that Pakistan is the one country with the most positive perceptions about mm. China in the world. Mm. So when you talk about average people, they're like, oh, China, they love, we love China. It's true. So average people love China. They have for years, decades, for generations now because of the special bond that they've had. Then we come to the CPEC projects. In the media, uh, there is a lot of positivity about the projects because actually Pakistan required these developments and the impact has been quite positive in terms of job creation and um, electricity, etc. However, there are some reports that talk about what is the feasibility, just as you said, Oni, that can we pay back these loans um, can we afford to trust the Chinese to determine, etc. So there is a bit of a 90% is positive, even in the media. Even the, if the media is critical of the government, they are quite positive towards the China-Pakistan economic corridor. Mm. However, to enhance, to further increase the trust for people who feel, okay, maybe we won't get jobs, I think uh, both the countries have to make better contributions to improving the understanding, which is what my show is also about. We talk about the developments along the corridor. If there has been something uh, misrepresented or if something is not clear to the local people or is a new development, then we talk about it. And then this is this is one way to enhance the trust and also to make sure that we are making the right decisions, to hold the right people accountable. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned it's your job, your current job, right? Uh, as a Tsinghua researcher? Yes, okay, yes. Okay. Could you tell us more about uh, the job that you're doing at the Tsinghua University Belt and Road Strategy Institute right now? Well, it's a research, it's, we are an institute and we are basically aimed at enhancing the understanding about the Belt and Road Initiative. Some of our, we are based out of the International Relations Department in Tsinghua University. So some of us are focusing on Russia, some of us are experts in European in the European region. My director specifically focuses on China and the EU and China and the 16 plus one arrangement. And for me personally, I focus more on the Western regions of China, mm-hmm. which is mainly Pakistan, but also a little bit Iran, Afghanistan, because of scholar. Also, I understand the Shanghai Corporation Organization region. So uh, we are we hold different activities. We work on various reports. We collaborate with other schools and other universities to create an environment where people can speak more openly about the challenges and to engage scholars, to engage uh, different audiences, and to have dialogue on uh, issues of the Belt and Road Initiative. So, of course, I mean, because we are based out of Tsinghua, the senior scholars that are affiliated with the Institute have uh, are present at these kind of meetings. 
and they have an impact or at least they have a voice in matters of determining the strategy from China's perspective. So our goal is basically to utilize our resources to further enhance our understanding and maybe give advice to the government, either Chinese or Pakistani or European, through various platforms on how to move forward. In the five years that CPAC has existed, and especially uh, with the growth of the uh, China-Pakistani bond, have you uh, noticed a spike in people-to-people connectivity, uh, exchange as well, and especially among the youth? Are there more students for Pakistan coming to China and vice versa? Pakistan is the biggest uh, beneficiary of the Chinese government scholarship, first of all. Uh, so this is this is where government to government has it grown from 2014 yes. to 2019, and it has, and so has the number of students. So okay. obviously, the total number of students that are coming to China at this point is 25,000, okay. given Pakistan's population, uh, because that's I think that's the number of students for many other countries that have. And these are all scholarship-based students. No, okay, not all of them. Many of them are medical students. Many of them are on other kinds of scholarships or on self-finance, but they are one of the most significant um, student diasporas in China at this point. And the thing is that even though for many years prior to CPEC, we did not have significant people-to-people contacts, not for various years from the 80s up until now. But since CPEC, the governments have done a lot to facilitate this. So whereas we have about 25,000 students in different parts of China, we have many tens of thousands of Chinese living in Pakistan Mm -hmm. and working in Pakistan, and the number increases every time. Hundreds of thousands visit in a year. This has happened just because of CPEC. Amazing. I mean, that's what counts. It is. No, and that's how they're familiarizing each other with one one another. I meet so many Chinese in Beijing who have a family member or a friend or someone who has been to Pakistan or lives in Pakistan or works with people from Pakistan. This is CPEC. How many uh, flights a week do you have between Pakistan and China? Or at least Beijing to uh, I believe seven now, six or seven. Okay. It changes. But uh, before, when I came here, there were two uh, by PIA. And I think there were two by... Uh, that's not that so high. So that's the significant growth that we there can is a growth. right now. There is a growth, right. for sure. And there was one by Air China. And now, if you look at the flights between China and Pakistan, or even domestic flights in Pakistan, it's... A lot of Chinese. Mm-hmm. And they are, it's not that they are living, they're parts of the projects where obviously if the project is an isolated location, then they live in their own communities. But a lot of them are living, like where I live, we have so many Chinese families now living in the same street. Mm-hmm. So they are part of the local community. They're living like any other Pakistani possibly. And there's much more tourism to do with uh, Pakistan and China. So recently there was a bus service from my city, Lahore, to Kashgar. How long does that take? Actually, 36 hours. Okay, so it's not that far. It's not that far. And a lot of people are going because of the, this is part of CPEC. It is to promote people-to-people contact. What, and that what's the enhance. altitude like? How, how uh, high about, uh, the, is the road? The, the Hunjara Pass is actually the highest altitude pass in the world. And I believe it's about 5,800 meters high. My goodness. It goes through the Hindu You have to range. have oxygen masks for that. Have you Unless passed it yourself? Uh, I've been to it, but I didn't okay. pass it. I've been to it in 2011. Okay, wow. Well. 
Yeah. So there is a lot of potential for, especially because Pakistan's proximity to we share a border. There have been people-to-people contacts to some extent within Pakistan's northern area and China's western regions, but now we see it more mainstream. And your prime minister just arrived to China, right? Yes, yes, tonight. And what is the agenda for his meeting with the uh, leadership of China, and what do you help hope to get out of it uh, during this meeting? Because I understand that there's uh, at least uh, more than uh, four or five times that leaders see each other during a year. Yes. So this time, uh, Pakistani, the Pakistani embassy and government have organized trade uh, events to facilitate trade between both countries. So today, tomorrow, there will be uh, day long. There are day long meetings between Pakistani. And other uh, potential business, like uh, like an expo, and this has been done to facilitate partnerships between Chinese and Pakistani and other businessmen. And in order to make trade more attractive, Pakistan and China are going to sign an FTA. And this is after that a is very huge. yes, and it's after a very long time of negotiation. About three thirty right. products are going to be on almost no tax. Or less tax, and this is something that we've been negotiating. This is something I covered so many times on the Belt and Road face to face that I've lost count because we were negotiating for that long. Mm-hmm. And once that is signed, hopefully we can address the trade imbalance that exists mm-hmm. between China and Pakistan. And what is the imbalance? One point eight billion to eighteen billion. Well, there you go. <laughs> so we need this. But to be Absolutely. fair, to be fair, um, even now, if I think about what can Pakistan sell to China, we have to build our capacity. Mm-hmm. And China, through CPEC, is helping us build that capacity in, in a lot of ways. Technology transfer, agrotech, basic relocation of industry by Chinese. So there's a lot happening to make Pakistan capable of addressing the trade deficit. And simultaneously in today, today in President Xi's speech, he said that we want to increase our imports from other countries. Right, right. They he wanna, stated it. Yes, yes, yes. And then there was the China Import-Export Expo. Yes, mm-hmm. which so, will happen again in November. Which will happen again. And Xi Jinping again. also announced during the expo yeah. that they will increase the import to $30 trillion in the next 15 years. So that's a so that's an opportunity huge, to see huge huge mm-hmm. spike from what they're what the Chinese are importing today, mm. which is around two two point five trillion. So that means for Pakistan and for all other countries along the Belt and Road, mm-hmm. most countries, developing countries, have a significant trade deficit, and this is also because we are developing our capacity to export right. to China. And sometimes the trade deficit benefits us as well because we are able to export technology from China, which we couldn't have exported, imported from maybe Western countries. And imports from China are fueling the growth of developing countries as well. But with time, we have to move towards China's relocation of industries to other countries. And And it's already happening slowly. It's already happening. Yeah, but one one thing that I wanted to mention, a friend of mine, uh, he is importing uh, from Pakistan healthcare mm. products like like scalps for example we are good at that I've yes heard. and i've uh, i was very surprised and he's yeah. like yes i went to lahore i went to karachi i went to all these different pakistani yeah. cities and this is something that we're doing already and uh, apparently doing very well and i was very surprised yeah this is uh, even actually i didn't know so much about this industry till i came to china and we have a competitive edge in um, in this kind of equipment. And also, Pakistan provides the footballs for uh, FIFA, by the way. Right. 
so uh, pakistan's footballs actually footballs made in salkot which is a city very close to lahore are the best in the world really yes oh, wow. and and then our textile industry is also mm. very strong we have immense potential for agriculture which is being uh which is being tapped right now in gwadar which was completely barren over the past 2 years they have started building they have allocated spaces to uh do agriculture which was unheard of mm-hmm. and so slowly uh, we have this kind of cooperation to not just to identify what what we can grow but also to improve the current yields so there's a lot more apart from uh from some uh some industries that were identified earlier that we can potentially export to china and now is the time to look at what our strengths could be and just to start instead of overthinking it one yeah. of the one of the biggest strength that pakistan has is its young population right yes. so the more they have the opportunity to tap into the um possibilities new economic possibilities pakistan has the youngest a population in exactly, south asia exactly and we have over 200 million people yes so this is one of the reasons that attracts uh because china has a relatively aging population to relocate industry in pakistan can be beneficial because we have a potential for a very good strong skilled labor and continuing on the topic of the youth uh, zone you are the curator of the discussion club of scholar yes. um so could you tell us uh, how you how you became part of the organization and when did seo come onto your professional agenda well the seo or a personal interest personal interest <laughs> for sure you know it i i was coming to a few events every as whenever i could mm-hmm. um i had a friend who was from pakistan who was part of scholar and i remember this one time we kind of met and we thought okay you know what why don't you start why don't you do discussion club and i was so happy to hear that it's something i think generally for me moderating is something i like doing i love the i i also studied the shanghai corporation organization i wrote a lot about it prior to coming to china so mm-hmm. the seo scholar it was something that i felt very strongly about earlier so being a part of it actually seeing how things happen in the secretariat how how young people from this region how much i can learn from them it all drew me towards scholar and for sure being in a position to to be able to make some kind of an impact on young people or to actually be able to see people from from india from tajikistan from other countries you know come and talk to an audience from all over the world about issues that concern us in this region which mm-hmm. is so important i feel i feel very strongly about that and i think all of us do and most importantly it's the positive energy that is in scholar it's it's really family and i would never dispute that so i second that yes <laughs> so i think that's i once said this to olim that before before scholar i was always in pakistan like it, for me my china experience was about pakistan but after scholar it's not just about pakistan and i think that that is a very big difference for me that i experienced it was a difference that i never anticipated before scholar now you're in the 18 country zone now i'm in a bigger yeah, zone exactly <laughs> Amazing conversation. I mean, uh, all of us, the three of us can really talk for hours. Right? <laughs> uh 
Um, I want to thank you, Susan, for being uh, on the podcast. I want to thank you for your contribution uh, to Scholar and being a core uh, person who also brings more Pakistanis onto the Scholar team. Zun, as always, thank you so much. It's my privilege. Thank you so much for having me.